Hey everyone, and welcome back to another episode of The Negotiation. This is part one of a two-part series with Morgan Keldson, renowned international business development and retail expert. With a career spanning over two decades, Morgan has worked with some of the biggest names in the industry, including Nike, Converse, and Vans. Today, he offers his expertise to organizations in the athletic and fashion lifestyle space, helping them navigate the complex business landscape of the Asia-Pacific region. In this episode, we learn about Morgan's background, how he got into China and began working with Nike, and what makes the brand so iconic around the world. Morgan also shares his insights on the challenges he faced while working with the Jordan brand and how he navigated them. Additionally, we dive into the importance of localization in product design, marketing, and merchandising, and how it differs between different consumer markets in Asia. Whether you are a seasoned business professional or just starting out, you can't afford to miss this enlightening conversation with Morgan Keltson. So sit back, relax, and get ready for part one of the negotiation with Morgan Keltson. Enjoy. So I don't want to say it was easy by any means, but we had a lot of wind behind our back, given that the Olympics was such a focus and having both the the U.S. national team and the China national team under sponsorship where we had the apparel, we had the equipment. And then obviously with signature athletes, we did some special projects with LeBron and Kobe and Carmelo Anthony specifically for China, specifically for the Olympics. So we had we had a lot of weapons to to use to to really amplify us. And what was great was I had counterparts where we were doing the same in soccer, the same in running, the same in sportswear. So it was a really an amazing effort that continues to this day. I mean, obviously with the Olympics, with World Cup, those are the the key moments that Nike thrives on. Home to over 4 billion people, the Asia-Pacific region boasts one of the most powerful consumer markets on the planet. Not only is it home to half of the world's under 30 population, but it's also home to more than half the world's internet users. It's a market that no globally-minded organization should ignore. But entering markets like China, Japan, or Southeast Asia is no easy task. Just ask the likes of Microsoft, Google, Uber, and Facebook. However, times are changing, and with the right partners, doors are slowly opening as more and more companies find success growing their key markets in APAC. I myself spent eight years in China, mostly as a venture capitalist, helping early-stage tech companies grow in the Asia-Pacific market successfully. This show is dedicated to uncovering and examining successful Asia market entry and growth strategies by interviewing the experts who've done it before and truly understand what it takes to be successful in the region. My name is Todd Embley, and welcome to The Negotiation. Brought to you by WPIC Marketing and Technologies. Morgan, welcome to the show. Awesome. Thanks for having me, Todd. Great to be here with you. First, let's set the stage. Where are you in the world today where you're recording from? So I'm calling in from Melbourne, Australia, where it's summertime. Yes, I know. I'm so jealous. Obviously, I'm in Canada, where it is very much not summertime. <laughs> <laughs> I, I gave the preliminary introduction into some of your background and the brands you've worked with, but can you do me about 10 times better and maybe give a little bit more of a uh, background and introduction into yourself and the work that you do? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so basically, I've spent uh, almost 30 years working for the sportswear and fashion brands you mentioned in Asia Pacific, really helping focus on the brands and the business and growing them across the region. And as you mentioned, right now, I'm currently uh, doing some downtime working with some smaller brands, helping them explore the opportunities in the region, but basically a uh, lifelong Asia guy. So really happy to be on the podcast. Yeah, I mean, and I'm curious to know how you ended up in China. I think everybody who does end up in Asia has a pretty cool story. It's one of those 
uh, tripped, fell, landed in China, and then stayed for like 30 years. Uh, and, and it's always cool how that happened. So, you know, tell us a little bit about that. And, uh, and then tell us about how you started with Nike in Guangzhou in 1993. Absolutely. Yeah. So I love telling the story and it's always props to my mom, who, uh, was the one that set the vision very early on. She's actually from the Philippines and, uh, born and raised there. My dad met her there, got married, but then I was born in the States, but going into junior high and high school, I studied French. Um, I either could do French or Spanish at my, my school. And as I was getting ready to go to college, mom said, you know, French is nice, but you're gonna have to get a job. You should think about the future and Asia is the future. So this is back 1987 dating myself. But, uh, as I said, props to mom, I went into college, uh, at Washington university in St. Louis and decided to try Chinese and, uh, ended up loving it, um, to the point where I was a Chinese major, uh, continued doing my French as well, but also did a business minor. And, um, my whole goal was to see if there was a way to work for a big American company to help crack the China market. And as you all know, looking back at China in 1991, um, it was a very different landscape than where we are now. So, um, what ended up happening was after I graduated, I did a year of graduate study in Nanjing, um, ended up getting a job in a hotel in a management training program in Shanghai. And uh, there was a big sporting event that was happening in Shanghai called the East Asian Games. And um, I ended up working in sales, banquet sales. And I managed the hospitality center that Nike had there for all the athletes and uh, all the employees. So made a bunch of connections and just contacted Nike. And these were the early days where it was probably about 50 people working in the Guangzhou office and um, uh, became good friends with the team there and just ended up getting hired into Nike China on the marketing side in 93. Um, Basically, like I said, the very early days, Nike China was two years old that year. I'm going to get into that, but your Chinese is pretty good. Yeah, it's pretty good. Yeah. I being Canadian, obviously being a bilingual country, we learned French growing up. I felt that that French background was really helpful, especially in, especially when it came to the vowel sounds of Mandarin. And I know this has nothing to do with business in, in, in APAC. And I know that's what our listeners are here for. for it. But I, I want to ask you, do you think, have you ever thought that having that that French background helped you with your Mandarin? Absolutely. I mean, I think part of it is just, you know, your brain as you're training it to learn a different language. And I, I didn't grow up speaking Tagalog, unfortunately. That was uh, something my, my mom tried and I resisted on when I was young. But I think by the time I got into starting Mandarin, I'd already done six years of French and just really enjoyed it. And I think to your point, a lot of the sounds, the way that you, you vocalize um, is so different from English, but there is some similarities there. So I, I, I do think that if you are, you know, enjoy a language uh, and want to try a different one, um, you know, I've always wanted to do Japanese, so maybe it's not too late. <laughs> I've heard that, that you, there's some similarities there, that if you have Japanese, it's a bit of an easier jump into Mandarin and vice versa. But uh, you know what? If you ever do go down that road, come back and let us know if it was actually uh, if your Mandarin <laughs> background helped you. OK, on to talking a little bit more about Nike. OK, so you ended up being with Nike in Asia for 15 years and then you were with Converse, which is owned by Nike but you're on that side of the business for another seven years. Okay. Before we talk about Asia, the geography at a high level, I'd like just to ask you, what is it that Nike does obviously so exceptionally well? 
right? How have they managed to build this this iconic brand that resonates with billions of consumers around the world from your perspective of your work in Asia? Yeah, well, the thing that I'll always say about Nike that I'll always always have the utmost respect for the brand is the focus on innovation in all regards. So obviously product, but when you look at the marketing and retail and digital, they really are world class. And I'd say not only in this, you know, sportswear space, I think you look at a lot of those iconic brands that resonate with consumers. Innovation to me is is the key that I always felt Nike was amazing at. Um, And then really where they've dimensionalized the business is they're still so so well grounded in and inspired by athletes, which is their core. But they've also stayed focused on their consumers, which are constantly evolving. You've always got new consumers, young consumers coming in. Just the 50 year anniversary last year for the brand. Um, I think it just speaks to their focus and dedication on that core consumer. And then, you know, I'd be remiss if I didn't say the talent level that they have and, and how they've invested in their people around the world over the years. You know, I was so fortunate to be able to work in different geographies. Um, they really create great paths for investing in their people to get opportunities to learn about different cultures and frankly, just some of the best teachers you could possibly have in the industry. I don't know if it's a chicken and egg or a hand in hand, but when you have an iconic brand, I think you have a bit of an unfair advantage to attract talent because working for those those types of brands is something that everybody strives to to achieve. They want to be with those kind of brands as much as people wear Nike Air Jordans or something because they want to be associated with the swoosh. I think it also works in 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 the asset of the of the people uh, class of of a company as well. So, well, kudos to you. I know it's it's really really hard to get in. It's a tough position to to win. You got in early. You you hacked your way in. Kudos to you on on going after what you want. Tell us a little bit more about the work that you did for Nike in Asia and maybe some of your results that you achieved that you're most proud of. Yeah, absolutely. So as you said, it was like early days when you look at it from where we are today. And so part of the fun part of being with the brand back then was it was a much smaller organization. There was a much more, a lot more opportunity to delve into different areas of the business and um, being in Asia, which was a pretty young region at the time. um, My, most of my time in Nike was in the footwear product management space, which was really the role was we were representing the markets in Asia and then working with Beaverton to make sure that we could influence the the product teams to have product that worked, you know, as well as possible for the region, both performance and lifestyle. Um, and as far as, you know, like the, the part that I enjoyed the most before we got to the basketball role, which I know we're going to talk about a little later, was um, being in footwear, being in Asia in the late 90s, early 2000s. Those were the earliest days of Nike sportswear really coming to birth. And we were allowed and took advantage of making a lot of great collaborations with Japanese streetwear artists, creatives. Um, we did all the initial Chinese New Year product for uh, for China as we were first coming out. So like uh, if, if you if you were to, you know, I'm, one day I'm going to write a book about all the, um, yeah. the the projects that we worked on. And I've got a nice little uh, storage of, uh, you know, ones that we we made over the years. But that that was some of the most fun part was working in those early days and even the early days of the Internet. Well, before you had StockX and Goat and all of these other, you know, resale channels, it was just the whole hunt of finding those sneakers and and making them was a ton of fun. So you have the shoes. I have some shoes. Yes. 
<laughs> I don't even know if if you're allowed to. Wait, let me. Ask, how how many pairs of shoes do you have? Uh, in the triple digits. <laughs> <laughs> well, and you should. I think. I I think if we if you had said, oh, you know what? I didn't actually collect any shoes along the way. People would be throwing chucking things around their house or their car wherever they're listening to this. <laughs> Like what? Are, what? Why would you do that? But yes, no. I'm so happy to hear that you did. I'm also incredibly jealous. And, <laughs> and diving into that, because your final role with Nike was as the GM of the Jordan brand. The jealousy is ripe right now in the Asia Pacific region. So, can you tell us a little bit about that? That work was that an easy sell? Because hey, Michael Jordan, one of the top five most iconic athletes, no matter where you are in the world. So, following on that, what challenges? Was it difficult? Did what we think may have been really easy for you to do because of all the said leverage you have, were there a lot of challenges that that a lot of people may not see or know that come with that advantage as well? So start with the good and then let's let's talk about where some of the challenges may have been. Okay, cool. Yeah. So actually, one thing at the time I was uh, managing the GM, uh, the Jordan brand, I was also managing Nike basketball. So it was a bit of a hybrid role at that time. The Jordan brand was still a, a relatively small part of the business globally, unlike today. So it was it was a hybrid role where I got actually the best of both worlds. I had Nike basketball and brand Jordan. Um, and so for me, to be honest, I mean, it was a lot of work, a lot of pressure, but a lot of fun because the two years, it was the two years leading up to the Beijing Olympics. Olympics in 2008. And so as you can imagine, from headquarters, there was so much focus in all aspects, product, marketing, retail development, everything. So we had a lot of resources. But what I really enjoyed about that was that was the early days of Nike shifting to the category formation that they called it. So I was the first GM of the category in Asia, and I had counterparts in the US and Europe as well. So there was a lot of jockeying for resources. But what was so fun was everybody on our team was singularly focused on basketball, and we were all super passionate about it. Um, And so you had that laser focus that is, you know, hard when you're a more generalist across a lot of different categories or different brands. Um, so I don't want to say it was easy by any means, but we had a lot of wind behind our back, given that the Olympics was such a focus and having both the, the U.S. national team and the China national team uh, under sponsorship where we had the apparel, we had the equipment. And then obviously with signature athletes, we did some special projects with LeBron and Kobe and Carmelo Anthony specifically for China, specifically for the Olympics. So we had, we had a lot of weapons to, to use to, to really amplify us. And what was great was I had counterparts where we were doing the same in soccer, the same in running, the same in sportswear. So it was a really an amazing effort that continues to this day. I mean, obviously with the Olympics, with World Cup, those are the, the key moments that Nike thrives on. Um, so I was just lucky enough to be at a point in time. And then with the Jordan brand itself, Michael himself wasn't playing anymore at that point but obviously the brand continues to resonate super strong and uh you know i grew up in chicago so for me that was uh a bit of a job of a lifetime (laughs) no doubt uh i mean for i don't know if anybody wouldn't know this but yes michael jordan was famous from his time with the chicago bulls um so (laughs) yeah the chicago so yeah i mean were there challenges involved you would just think this thing sells itself i don't gotta do anything like what kind of challenges are actually involved with that 
I think the challenge of anything in a big organization like Nike and and at the time, again, this is, you know, nearly 15 years ago. So it's imagine how much more complicated it is organization size. So I think the the real effort comes from, you know, being air traffic controller, aligning all the pipes, getting everybody together on the same page. Um, And and of course, working with the external partners. So it's it's I, I would say it's a little bit like, you know, if you're the athlete itself, I mean, the number of people that are vying for your attention and trying to prioritize things within your scope. Um, it, it was more of a, you know, we were blessed with so many resources, but at the same time, there's a lot of attention, a lot of pressure. So it, 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 it it's a challenge in that way, but it's more managing the, the opportunity as opposed to, you know, really scratching out and trying to create something from nothing. You were responsible for greater China and, and at various times responsible for a lot of other markets. I believe doing uh, some preliminary research, we counted up to 14 different geographies that you may have been responsible for in conjunction at the same time or separately within the Asia Pacific region, right? So with China, Japan, Korea, Southeast Asia, all of that. Can you tell us a little bit about the nuances of the different markets and, and how Nike appeals to consumers in some specific regions that you can call out? For sure. My, my favorite part of working on the APAC region, and, and as I said, it's, you know, nearly 30 years of, of being focused on the region is the, the sheer diversity that exists across the region. So not that you don't have diversity in Europe or in South America or in other, other geos. But I think specifically with uh, Asia, if you go from China to Japan, to the Philippines, to India, to Australia, that's one of the parts that I've always loved is that there's so many local nuances for the consumers in in each local market. And even within countries, you have, you know, sub consumer bases. So I think the key is, if you're a brand that wants to be global, it's important to know who you are at your core and just to reference Nike again with sport and innovation, those are the areas that are universal. But then the fun part is working with each of the markets and getting into communities and getting with consumers and really finding a way to be locally relevant. And a bit later, I'll talk a bit about what I believe that means from a product standpoint, from a marketing standpoint. But I think the most important thing to emphasize is it's not it's one region geographically, but each country and within each country, there's so many subsets that it's all about having curiosity and wanting to connect to those communities and to those consumers that gives brands the real opportunity to be successful. Is it fair to say that going from Japan to Korea is less difficult than going from Japan to Australia on how deep into going back to the drawing board you'd have to go? Yeah, I think it really depends. There's there's so many different angles to business success in our industry. So I think one simple one you could say is if you talk about apparel and fit, the you know the the, the body shapes that people have in Australia versus Japan definitely creates some opportunities for local relevance. But if you're talking about trend, you know, it could be something like color. It could be something like fit. I mean, not fit, um, shapes of product or performance needs, or there's so many different angles to it. Um, I think when you look at North Asia, if you look at Japan, China, Korea, there's a real synergy between the markets as far as influence goes, whether it's music or art, um, that does influence, you know, um, this space for, for product. But I think 
think it's fair to say, yes, there's, you, you could break it down where Australia, New Zealand is very different, just happens to be in the same geography. But then when you get North Asia versus Southeast Asia, you also have climate, you know, issues year round hot in Singapore versus heavy winters in Japan. So there's a lot of things that you need to focus on even before you get to trend and, and, and fashion tastes. So in that same vein, can you talk to us a little bit about how you and the work that you would do to localize marketing, merchandising, and maybe even as you were mentioning, you know, and, and kind of covered there, the product design? I think as time's gone on and, and, you know, it's such an interesting thing predating the internet to where, you know, you had the opportunity to have different brand looks in different markets and not have much spillover across the rest of the world to where we are today, where everything is visible immediately to everybody in the whole world. And so I think that, you know, the importance of local relevance in our industry is, is more and more important as far as having something special for consumers in a, in a local way. And yet it's also very complicated for a global brand. And especially when you think about the back end, about design and development and manufacturing and all of those challenges, you, you can't be everything to everyone. So I think that as you see in this space, more and more competitors, both international, I say international, meaning non-Asia based competitors, whether it's European or American brands, and then local, meaning regional, you know, partners, uh, creatives like, you know, local brands, especially in China, um, that importance of being locally relevant is more and more important. So when I look back at my time, especially the Nike days is it was earlier days. So as we were getting more and more into Chinese New Year product or seasonally relevant product for Southeast Asia, again, year round warm, instead of selling boots in Australia in the middle of summer, how can you make sure you have product that is actually relevant for the local environment? Um, that was something that we were able to do. But I think as the years go on, it gets harder and harder because there are more and more competitors in our space and consumers are connected around the world and see, again, everything all at once. Did you ever have the opportunity or, or spend any time deep at all in the merchandising space? Because I think that's a, an interesting point that I might lean on if you're if you're up for it. Yeah, no, totally. I, I'd say, you know, with all of my brands, um, a, he a heavy part of it was in the merchandising space and where I feel we were really fortunate, especially in the later brands. So with Converse and with Vans was we also had regional creation teams that we would partner with the global product teams and pre-plan what we would take from the global line and then what we would make locally for the local market needs. Um, but really from day one with Nike as well, that was what our job was, was to influence the global team to try and get the product to be as relevant as possible. But whatever ended up from the global assortment, we would then build the sub assortment from within that, that was right for China, for Japan, for Korea. So merchandising has always been uh, the core of what my teams did. Yeah, I mean, I, I I don't really know. I'm kind of asking from a, a position of naivety because I don't know if consumers offline shopping in Japan have the same behaviors as offline retail shopping in Vietnam or in Singapore, right? Which would then lend itself to shop design and and mm. and rack placement and mm. where are display cases right and and because i know that even comes to e-commerce merchandising you know the layout of of your website and and how the pages flow and the navigational tools and things would be different did you did you spend some time that did was was that something that was important to consider for the work you were doing in different areas 
Yeah, I think, you know, the part that uh, if you look at the industry where it was 20 years ago, as far as the majority of the business done in wholesale channels like a Foot Locker or a JD Sports or something like that, had the same in Asia. So in Japan, you have ABC Mart, you have you have partners across the region that would be really big partners for that more traditional multi-brand sneaker shopping. Um, but I think what you've seen in the industry worldwide, and, and really we, we led this, it just happened in China where they leapfrogged into the stage where it's almost all mono brand shopping. Um, that wasn't the case in our industry, again, 20 years ago. Um, but Asia really led the way, particularly China. So that was what was really great about working in the APAC region with China as one of the focus areas was you had the chance to do the old way of merchandising again for Japan or for Korea, where majority sales were still through multi-brand channels. So you had assortment strategies, but a lot was out of your control. But as soon as DTC, both brick and mortar and e-commerce became more and more important for the brands, then you, we as the product merchandising team would work with the retail planning team or with the e-commerce team. And then how we built assortments was built also considering, as you said, fixtures and how you would do layouts and what would your key story be at the lead-in table. And then on the digital side, obviously, there's so many amazing talents that are there observing how consumers are are shopping. And then what's the product component of it? That was the part in my product roles that we would always work together with them on. One last little point on the transition from you know, the the Nike kind of Jordan business over to the Converse business, slightly different attitudes, right? I mean, Converse and Nike back in the day were were highly basketball driven, uh, both brands. Converse has, uh, and correct me if I'm wrong, I feel like they're a bit of a skater type of cooler, trendier, you know, for a, a little bit of a different demographic. So tell me a little bit about that. And and maybe if there's some some nuances to how the localization strategies might have differed between the two brands. Yeah. And, and to be honest, that was one of the parts that was really appealing for me about moving from Nike to Converse was, um, you know, love the Nike brand, will always love the brand and the performance and the innovation. And within that space, sportswear for getting into youth culture, into music and art and everything. But the Converse piece, if you look at the whole history and you look at the iconic nature, particularly of the Chuck Taylor, um, it's the OG of OGs, right? As far as the product goes, over 100 year old. And I think for me, what was really exciting about the opportunity to move over to Converse was um, a really good friend of mine took over the region after Nike bought Converse. China was the first market that was converted from a distributor to an own market. Mm. And over the years I was there, we converted a few other markets, but it was really a very different challenge to entering the Asia marketplace, particularly because you mentioned it earlier, Nike would walk in the door and so many consumers knew who the brand was, wanted the brand, loved the athletes, everything. Converse was not in that space, nor really is any other brand, you know, at that scale. So the challenge of coming into working with a smaller brand that had an amazing legacy, um, but wasn't necessarily in that same space and frankly was much more focused on the lifestyle space. So Depending on how old somebody is, you might remember running 
junior high track where in Converse spikes, but that was a long time ago. Um, really, I would say since Nike bought Converse, there are areas they still focus on performance. So, so skateboarding is one. They are doing performance basketball product as well. But when I was there, the heavy focus was on dimensionalizing the Nike business with that lifestyle product. And again, the nice thing about the Chuck Taylor is it is such a universal, iconic style. And the partner that had worked with Converse before Nike came in had been doing it for 15 years. So there were thousands of stores across the market. They had built the brand up really well. They made product themselves. So we really just sort of did a, a takeover from what they did, partnering with them, and then carried it from there. Um, but I think to your question about localization as well, that was the really fun part. If you think about the Chuck Taylor, and we always called it the blank canvas, there's so many things you can do with that from a design standpoint, materials, colors, zippers, adding tweaks on it, building platforms, um, a very different thing than the performance model that you would have at Nike as far as focusing on athletes and innovation. It was innovation of a different type, but in a much more creative yeah. way and very tied to music and art and all of those areas that I think have been in the DNA for, for a long time. I, uh, and maybe I'm just putting this together for the first time, but I, I, I remember, and I, I've always called my Converse Chucks. Yep. Is it come from the founder's name Chuck? I mean, is, <laughs> is that is, is that where that all comes from? So no, if you if you if you do a little Google search afterwards, Chuck Taylor was uh, a basketball player, I believe, in the 1910s, and so yeah. the signature model, which is the Chuck Taylor that the high cut has the star on the inside ankle, yeah. um, is Chuck Taylor. So it's his signature. So so the model, it's the model name that's based on an athlete from very far back in the day. Okay, yeah, it's 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 funny because everybody will refer to them as Chucks. And I've just called them Chucks because other people were calling them Chucks. And I've actually never known where that name come from. Um, thank you for that. Growing a company is hard. Doing it in a foreign market? Exponentially so. The best piece of advice I can give you is not to do it alone. When you start looking at the Asia-Pacific region for further expansion possibilities, and I sincerely hope you do, make sure you choose the right partners to do it with. My good friends at WPIC Marketing and Technologies have almost 20 years of experience helping brands, just like yours, enter China, Japan, and Southeast Asia. I hope you enjoyed this episode of The Negotiation, and if you're interested in being a guest or want to connect with me or any of our team, please reach out to us at podcast at WPIC.co, and be sure to rate, comment, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.